you're listening to Firm Up, the Fermented Food Podcast, where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. This is episode 28. I'm your host, Brandon. And again, Daniela is not with us, but I have a special guest, Benjamin Wolf. Hi, Benj- Ben. Do you- hey, Brandon. Uh, ben or Benjamin? Uh, ben works great. Okay. Uh, well, uh, so a little bit of, let me, tell me if I've got this right. You're a microbiologist and a mycologist. Is that correct? Well, so there's this sort of a problem in the, in the world of microbes where if you study bacteria, you're called a microbiologist. And if you study fungi, you're called a mycologist. And I'm doing both right now. Um, so I have a bit of an identity crisis. Um, okay. So, yeah, you can call me whatever you want. Now, it, just clarification, is it all kind of the same thing? Or is there really, uh, is there, beyond the title, is there separation? Are they all um, microorganisms? Or is there really a difference because you can see a lot of the fungi? Yeah, so microbes generally are things that are microscopic and small at some point in their life. So even molds, which we think of as being macroscopic things that we can actually see, are technically microbes in my mind because they do spend some of their time as microscopic things that we can't see. And they also do very similar things, generally speaking, to what bacteria do, which are you know, always microscopic to us. So you can sort of lump them all together in this broad umbrella category as microbes. Um, but then if you do want to start to split hairs, there are important differences in terms of um, how they're related to each other based on their DNA, um, how they're related to us, to humans versus each other. Um, so I like to use the analogy of different kinds of transportation to explain the difference between a, a bacterium a yeast and a mold. Um, so bacteria to me are sort of like a, a diesel powered scooter um, where they're very small. Um, sorry, a gas powered scooter The the okay. gas versus diesel is important. Okay. <laughs> so they're small, but you can get around on them, right? So you can't really carry around a lot of cargo. You can't really, you know, take, for kids to soccer practice on a scooter, but you can get around, you can move around. Sure. Um, and then I like to call the yeast, they're like a diesel powered Jetta. So they're, again, transportation, you're getting around, but it's larger, you can do more things in it. Um, and bacteria are powered by, in this case, the gas for the scooter, but um, the yeast are, they sort of use different kinds of, of resources. So in this case, we're using diesel. And then the molds I like to think of as a diesel-powered locomotive. Um, so, you know, when we look at a mold, when we look at that fuzziness growing on our bread, if it's spoiled or, you know, on a cheese, if it's camembert, that fuzziness is this big network of tubes all interconnected, kind of like a transportation system, just like a, a train network would be for moving cargo around the U.S. or Europe. Um and so, again, I say they're diesel-powered for the train to connect it to the, the yeast because yeasts and molds are actually both fungi. So there's the connection there. Um, but with the molds, you know, these networks are very big, and that's why we can see them with the naked eye. And they're very powerful because you can move things from one place to a very different part of a habitat, which is something that bacteria and yeast can't do. Um, so kind of I like to think of this transportation scooter to Jetta to, to locomotive uh, analogy for separating out the, the different 
different types of microbes. There are other ways to describe it. Um, I like to think of it that way. I like that one. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've, I've never heard anything like that. So it, it did definitely clarify it. Cool. Um, so awesome. And so you're at, uh, you're at Harvard University. Yeah. Um, you're you're uh, working specifically with Rachel Dutton, which we've talked about before. And, and we've talked about you on the show before as well. Um, you're, you're studying, um, you're studying cheese, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So our, I mean, Rachel set up the lab really to study microbes and not to study cheese. Um, but microbes ha- or cheese happens to be a great medium for studying microbes. And, and so is, did you start with, with her or did you come on later? Uh, so as soon as she set up the lab, I, I was knocking at the door, actually. I was okay. looking for a, for a job after I finished my PhD, which is on mushrooms. Um, so I was studying those little red and white mushrooms from Mario Brothers. That was my PhD. Awesome. Um, and I was trying to figure out what to do next. And there isn't a lot in science that's very relevant to the real world. A lot of it is important, but very basic, and, and you can't really connect it to everyday life. And I heard Rachel was starting this lab where we would be doing cheese microbiology, um, and she needed a, a mycologist to join the team. So there I was. Awesome. So it sounds like for for you, maybe it was even a little bit more direct, whereas, like, it's, it's, and correct me if I'm wrong, but with, uh, with, with Rachel's intention is really using it as a model system. Um, right. And it sounds like maybe you're you came into it a little bit more excited for the practical side of something that could be applied such as cheese or a little I bit. Of did. I did. I definitely did. And, but the exciting thing is I've kind of gone back to the side of uh, the basic science at the same time. Um, so as I approached cheese, I, I just wanted to know more about what the critters were on cheese. And I actually was very surprised when I joined the lab that people hadn't figured this out already. Um, it seems like, you know, we've been eating this thing for thousands of years that we should probably know what's on it. Um, but there's there are a lot of unknowns, which was surprising to me. Um, and I was also a little bit skeptical of the, the practicality of using it as a model to understand just how microbes work, because it's this very, you know, it's a very artificial thing. We make cheese. There's no, like, piles of brie just lying around in the forest. Um, but it turns out that there are amazing things that we could talk about later that are, are very similar about cheese rinds, which are what we're studying, to microbes that are really important to human health and for industry that has nothing to do with to cheese. So that's been really exciting to find that stuff out. And and so all of this is just kind of, uh, how long has this project been going on? Or- so we, we've been here now oh, about two and a half years, um, and we have two and a half years left of, of funding for for the lab. So she has a Bauer fellowship at Harvard, which is a, a short term uh, fellowship program that allows her to start a very small lab um, and hire two other people as postdocs. So people who've done their PhDs and are looking to do more research. And she has the money for five years. Okay. Um, yeah. And and then, and then is the goal maybe to continue on from there? Or is it kind of since it's in the middle, just still trying to figure out uh, like, do you think that this will uh, be able to span out into other kinds of areas? Definitely. I mean, I think the goal for Rachel, for sure, is to continue on in academia and set up another lab somewhere for the long haul. Um, so she'll definitely be doing cheese microbiology in some way or another uh, for a long term. And then we're also trying to figure out now if we can um, work on setting up a, a small lab that has more of a practical focus uh, to help cheesemakers out, to have people sort of pay us um, to do the work that we're doing now, but focus only on the practical aspects of, of making cheese more awesome. 
which is something that, if I understand correctly, you kind of maybe on a different scale do already. I mean, I, I, I think I saw in your bio the San Francisco Cheese School and Harvard yeah. Summer School. Is that yeah. kind of the same kind of stuff or? Yeah, we do a lot of like pro bono um, cheese whisperer type okay. uh, stuff where people, I mean, we, we educate the public about what we're, what we're learning about just to help people understand the world that they're exposed to all the time um, in, a, in a deeper light. But we also get a lot of people sending us cheese samples um, to help them understand what microbes they have, why, you know, certain times of the year they get some brown mold that makes their cheese taste different, or um, how can they find endemic strains of, of microbes to make their cheese better. So we have been doing that at a small scale, sort of pro bono, um, but we don't have enough time. There, there's a huge demand for that, actually, and very little uh, knowledge out there or people willing to do that kind of work. So we're hoping to set up shop and have a, a really small uh, business that we can actually do that and, and do it full time so we could help as many people who want it. Awesome. And so that, then that would uh, really just be um, a, a total side kind of thing for cheesemakers, for – is there really not anyone else doing that or at least not easily accessible? Yeah, there are labs that you can send your cheese off to to get it tested for very basic, you know, bacterial load counts and, and things like that. So cheesemakers can do that now or, or they can get it tested for listeria. Um, but for more complicated things where you're actually trying to understand the community and how microbes are interacting and the production of specific flavors or or questions about you know, even is this starter culture from Danisco or Chris Hansen's, is it even actually ending up in my cheese and how much of, the, of my cheese identity comes from the culture I buy versus my environment? Um, those kinds of things, there aren't people out there who are addressing those kinds of questions. There, it, it takes more of an ecological perspective and less of a sort of epidemiological or, you know, pathogen specialist kind of perspective. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, thinking about uh, in your study of these things too, I just can't help but think of all the the images that I see that either you've posted yeah. on Twitter or otherwise. Yeah. Is are those things that you're taking? Or, yeah. Uh, yeah. How are you getting those images? I mean, obviously, some kind of microscope. Yeah. So one of the first things that we do when we get a sample of cheese in the lab is we'll plate it out onto a, a petri dish. So it's simply a, you know, you're trying to coax the microbes from growing out of this very rich, dense, complicated environment to sort of simplifying it in a way. It'd be like someone going out into the forest and collecting a bunch of plant leaves to identify the plants that live in a forest. You, you know, you bring them back to your lab and lay them out on a table and identify them. So that's what we do with the microbes on these petri dishes. So they're, they're growing in this very um, simple environment where they're very flat. They're very, you know, they're growing in a place where we can tease them apart. And then often I'll just take a picture of those under um, my you know, SLR with a macro lens or sometimes under a, a dissecting microscope that we, we have kicking around. Um, and then at a really fine scale, like if you can see individual cells, that's under a, a light microscope with high magnification. Okay. So, but the, like, so some of them, and, and I'll try and link to some in the, in the yeah. show notes as well, but uh, so some of them that... Uh, like the glassy ones and the translucent ones, a lot of yeah. those are just taken straight with the DSLR camera. Yeah, yeah, or or yeah, with just some like light underneath it, and then um, have a camera up up pretty close. Yeah, yeah, and they're beautiful. They're they, really they 
Yeah, and people, um, I actually have some photos hanging up at a cheese shop in, in Boston, at Formaggio in, in Boston, and people love it because they come in and it just, it's a very abstract representation of cheese, and so it just, it's it's really beautiful, yeah. Awesome, and and what, uh, because I really haven't seen anything like that, I think why I haven't really is because it's like, well, I see a lot of the electron microscopic images or different things like this. And this is kind of a different perspective. Is this just something you kind of just saw and just needed to capture or is it something that's kind of out there and I'm just not aware of it? Uh, no, I think, you know, again, most microbiologists aren't really in it for the, the beauty of the microbes. They're in it to, you know, answer a question and go home. And I think Rachel and I, I think Rachel also has taken a lot of these photos. And so I think we both have this, obsession with how these things are beautiful and one way to get people excited and explain the microbes to to the general public is by showing them the microbes and i think this is a great way to do that um and yeah and and usually the pictures of the microbes that are out there are the bad guys so there's a lot of if you google you know cheese microbe you're probably going to get a lot of listeria and staph aureus and you know the scary things but you probably won't get a lot of Geotricum or uh, Brevibacterium linens, you know, you'll get a lot of a lot of bad stuff. And I guess this is kind of stretching out a little bit more than just uh, with cheese. But do you think that that like all those those bad bacteria and everything does? Is it just that people aren't as aware that there are so many good bacteria? I mean, I would think in cheese that that would be. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of good microbes that are are part of it. It's just, but still, people focus on the bad ones when they're really. Uh, sharing it, I guess, or, I mean, or easily accessible or. Yeah, I think we have been so focused on the bad microbes because we haven't really known a lot about the good ones until very recently. And I think things like, you know, all the work with the human microbiome project that's pointing to the, the important role that microbes in our gut play. Um, I think that has completely changed people's views of, of what a microbe is. So the idea that there are microbes living inside of you that are essential for you to live um, maybe has changed how we view what microbes are. Um, and so a lot of press has been given to that kind of work, and I think that's changing people's people's perspective. So I think now it's easier to talk about microbes and, and not gross people out to get them actually excited and engaged. Sure, yeah. And I mean, and yeah, again, back to those photos, it's, it's an awesome way of doing that. And yeah. Uh, so going a little bit more into the, the meat of the subject for today sure. about uh, cheese rinds. Yeah. Um, since you focus on that, what what is the cheese rind for maybe someone that doesn't eat a lot of cheese or doesn't think about it when they're eating it or hasn't ever made it? So what is it and in, in why is it there? Right. So there are a lot of different kinds of rinds that you can have on a cheese. Um, the things that we're mostly interested in are the ones that are alive. So you can, you know, you could put plastic or wax on the outside of your cheese as you're aging it and and not allow any fuzzy or slimy things grow on the outside. And that is a, a rind, but that's not really alive. Um, so what we're interested in are the cheeses that are naturally aged, so exposed to caves or aging rooms where microbes naturally colonize the outside surface of the rind. Um, and so we're not, again, we're not talking about the paste, we're talking about that, that very exterior surface. Um, and the rind serves a bunch of different roles um, and depends on the cheese. So for very short-aged cheeses um, and things that are um, very thin and very small cheeses, you know, a lot of the flavor of those cheeses in the paste actually comes from the rind. Um, so things like camembert and brie, you know, your classic blue rind cheeses, 
or other things like washed rind cheeses that are a very small format. And that's because as those microbes are colonizing the rind, as they're, as they're growing on the surface, they're eating up the curd and they're producing things called enzymes, these sort of nature's scissors, nature's chemical scissors, um, to break up the curd and release the, the flavor molecules that we perceive and that we, that we taste. Um, so in those kinds of situations, one of the big roles of the rind is actually to produce flavor. And so um, you're, you're saying it's producing flavor not just on the rind or not just right inside. It's, it's producing flavor all the way in. Exactly. Yeah, because it's, it's releasing these chemicals um, that can actually diffuse, that can actually move into the curd over time. Um, so, you know, that's why when you cut into a brie underneath the, the rind and, and actually fairly into the rind, it can be quite runny. Um, and that's because of the, the decomposition, the rot, the, the, the tasty rot um, that the mold and, and the other critters in the rind have, have done to the curd. Okay. And, and, and use the term critter. Is that a, is that a common term in the... I, I love to use it. Okay. <laughs> Again, it's, you know, it's to get some uh, charisma for these very uncharismatic critters. Uh, sure. There you go. I, I go yeah. But yeah, it, it's microbe <laughs> would be the more technical term. Sure. But, it, but it, that is like common enough. Like it's not like, a, uh, it's just your thing. Yeah, I love critters. Yeah. Well, hey, they, it's, uh, um, well, um, yeah. So, so you know, flavor is is definitely a big a big part of what rinds do. And are they formed by uh, the the cheesemakers? Or is some of it just would happen naturally if just left alone? I mean, how how is it that these cheese rinds are forming? Yeah, there's a bunch of different things that come into play, and you know, a lot of it is. Um, it's actually amazing to me that it works <laughs> because there are so many variables. I mean, just in making the curd, you know, and getting good curds to form in cheese making is a very complicated process. And then when you move to this aging process, the affinage to get the rinds to work develop, um, you're managing this, this community. You're managing, you know, what is a micro forest and you don't, I mean, most cheesemakers don't even know what's there. So it blows my mind that this works. But um, so, yeah, so there's a bunch of ways to, to get my, the microbes there. Um, if it's a raw milk cheese, there are microbes in the milk that can come into the, the cheese making process. And so once the cheese is made and the curds are set and put into a mold and you have your wheel of cheese, those microbes are there and they'll start growing on the surface. Um, Another thing cheesemakers do is they add starter cultures. So you can buy cultures, essentially domesticated microbes, um, that you can add and they'll grow and, and colonize the surface. Uh, and then another big source of the microbes is from your, your cave or your aging environment. So where you put the cheese as it's, as it's ripening, um, it's exposed to the open air and the air is full of lots of mold spores and, and bacteria and yeast um, that can come into the system. And, and this is kind of uh, going on a tangent here, but just thinking about that, does, do you, have you found through your uh, research so far when you're talking about a cave versus a, um, you know, the, the starter cultures that someone's using, which one seems to have more influence or yeah. is there a difference? Um, we can't really get at impact necessarily, but I can tell you that a general consensus based on many different papers um, in the literature and also our own observations is that more often than not, the native culture, so the, or the native microbes, so things that are in your raw milk or things that are in your cheese house or things that are in your cave end up being a much more abundant and much more, you know, they colonize the rind much more than things you add. So we have many cases of 
people adding starter cultures that never make it to the rind or that get kicked out by a, a native microbe because it grows better or faster or actually sometimes they even produce compounds, uh, antibiotics or things like that that can actually kill off the other, the starter cultures. So um, in many cases, the starter cultures don't make it. They're not really doing a whole lot. And, and you kind of make it sound like it's a little battle going on. It totally is. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, I mean, there's, there are examples we found of war uh, between microbes, um, but there are also examples of microbes helping each other out. So there's there's a lot of uh, cooperation. So it's definitely war and peace on your cheese rind. Awesome. And yeah. in 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 regard to that though, is like um, why isn't it that these direct set uh, these direct cultures are um, can they not be made stronger? Is it just impossible to replicate the environmental microbes? Uh, it totally depends. So and you know. A part of it could be a bias. There, I mean, there are many examples of the, the cultures you use actually being important. So on a camembert or brie-style cheese, that, that penicillium, the fuzzy white thing on the outside, mm -hmm. is almost always the thing you add. Um, and sometimes that's true of the geotricum. But with the bacteria and yeast, uh, this is, I think, especially true in a washed-rind cheese. Where, and it's also very much true in a raw milk cheese, where these critters that are already there and they're sort of native to that particular dairy or that aging environment, um, they outcompete them. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they're much more abundant maybe early on. So if you're making a raw milk cheese, you know, the number of uh, spores or um, cells of the bacteria or yeast can be much higher than the things that you're adding, the starter cultures you're adding. And also those starter cultures are often freeze-dried. And so it takes a while for them to wake up. Um, they kind of have to come out of that frozen packet and sort of wake up and get growing, which is a disadvantage compared to the the, cult, the, the microbes that may be living in the raw milk already. Okay. So it, it, uh, it's a challenging life being a microbe, especially a freeze-dried one, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So there are many examples of the starter cultures I'm making. But that said, there, I mean, there are also, you know, in these heavily inoculated cheeses like the, the Bloomy Rhine cheeses, um, many times the starter culture is, is the predominant thing, but in, in the wash rind and the natural rind cheeses, they're, they're often not. Now it does sound like you're kind of hinting at this already too, but like, so how, what, what, what are these differences in these rinds? So the different colors or shapes and. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is, is very simple manipulation. So a bloomy rind cheese, when you're, when you're heavily inoculating it with mold, um, you're creating a very, very moldy, monoculture essentially so there aren't a lot of critters in a in a moldy rind cheese or in a wash blah, not a moldy rind cheese in a bloomy rind cheese um because it's so you know there's a lot of penicillium or the the yeast but it looks like a mold geotricum added to those kinds of cheeses um you do have some other bacteria and some yeast there um so that's one manipulation that cheesemakers do to get a, a rind type you know, the second one is the washing. Um, and the washing is sort of like lawn mowing. So by going in and cutting the grass, in this case, you're, you're cutting the mold out. Um, you end up with this very sticky, very yeasty and very bacteria rich mold, uh, rind that has very few molds in it. So that's why, you know, most wash rind cheeses, there's very little mold growth. It's because you're going in, you're disturbing, you're breaking up the, the filaments, the, the threads that make up the mold. Okay. Yeah, and so that selects for things like the the orange-colored Brevibacterium, which is sort of a, a quintessential cheese microbe um, that, that makes the flavor and, and the color of, of many washed rind cheeses. 
Um, and it also selects for yeast. So the, the stickiness, the very tackiness of a lot of wash rinds is because there's a lot of yeast there. Okay, so it's so am I understanding this correctly that sometimes it's the the microbes themselves, other times it's their enzymes or byproducts, or is it? I mean, is the shape and color pretty much? Can you just look at it and see which ones are there? Um, can you guess which kind are there by visibly looking at it, or are a lot of those dead or not uh, active anymore? Does that make sense? All of those are true. Okay. okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so a, a washed rind cheese, it can have certain pigments and we can go in and, and fairly accurately guess what will be there. Um, but it's complicated because a lot of times the color doesn't actually come from a specific microbe growing there. It comes from the interaction between two microbes. Um, so we're finding that um, some bacteria in the presence of certain fungi produce outside of their cells. So they're actually releasing it into the paste, um, a pink color. Um, and so you can get like this very intense pink coloration, not because of the, the presence of a microbe, but because they're interacting with each other. We don't know why they're doing that or, you know, what is the line of communication that tells them I'm going to produce this pink color. Um, but sometimes, you know, you get the colors because of interaction. So that's more difficult to predict. Um, but, you know, we're getting pretty good now walking up to a cheese and say, ah, it probably has some scopulariopsis and some tuberomyces and a little bit of brevibacterium. Like we can we can do that surprisingly well these days. OK, it, well, in thinking of that, like that pink, st- like when you talk about these different things that you just don't understand, is there a, like a maybe a, a not too complicated way you can kind of describe? I mean, it just to me, it seems that it, it, if you see that they're responding and making a pink color, that it'd be easy enough to just look at it closer and then figure out like what's the complication of trying to figure these things out uh we're on it it's just it's a lot of chemistry essentially okay all right (laughs) um yeah so there we're uh, there are two problems we're only three people right now so um and we've found so many new kinds of interactions and and things like this pink pigment that's being produced um that we just can't actually figure them all out because it takes quite a while um, and part of it too is just um, getting the system up and running. So one of the first things we've done is a big screen where we um, take every microbe and, and grow it with every other microbe and look for things like the production of these different colors. Um, and that's how we see things like the um, inhibition of one microbe by another or the stimulation, the, the you know, when they're fighting with each other or they're helping each other out. But that's also where we see some of these color um, changes uh, and so from that, we get, you know, hundreds of different things that are interesting. Um, and so from there, we have to go in and, and do some chemistry. So it just takes a little while. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. It, it's it's not that it's, uh, you don't know the direction to go to figure these out. It's it's more just actually the doing the, the putting in the time to figure it just out. Just getting it done. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That, that makes yeah. more sense then. Yeah. yeah. Um, well then, it, so it sounds like these, uh, is it? different depending on the kind of cheese, whether it's a complex system or a more of a monoculture or a simple ecosystem? Yeah. I, I would say if you if you looked out in terms of the number of species that generally, although this can be different, um, bloomy rinds are the lowest in diversity um, and washed rinds are the highest in diversity. And we see that pretty consistently. And then natural rinds, so I didn't talk about those yet. Those are cheeses, you know, we're you don't really manipulate the rind very much. You, you make your cheese and you just set it on a shelf and stuff grows and you're not washing it to really maintain any of the specific um, 
wash drying microbes that you want, and you're not really heavily inoculating it with any mold. It's just sort of gross. And, you know, things like tombe de savoie and, you know, bandaged cheddars, those kinds of cheeses are very great examples of natural rind cheeses. And they tend to be in the middle of the diversity line. Um, yeah, so bloomy rinds are the lowest diversity and, and wash rinds are the highest. And is there, thinking about the, the context of using cheeses as, as cheese rinds as a model system for uh, these systems, is is that is there benefit in in, uh, in understanding or being able to differentiate, like the seeing how the the very basic ones interact on those bloomy rinds versus the more complex ones? I mean, which ones give you the uh, the most reward for your, uh, yeah. or is it kind of all equal? Like everything's good information. They all have different levels of complexity and different um, reasons for being useful for us. Um, so right now, our, our lab rat is a cheese called Bailey Hazen Blue, made in, in Greensboro, Vermont, by Jasper Hill. And that's a natural rind cheese. And the reason we're using that is that it's a fairly simple system. Um, it's something that has a nice mix of yeast, mold, and bacteria. Uh, and we could easily um, connect the microbes that were there to other microbes being studied in other systems. So there's actually a lot of parallels between what happens on a cheese rind and what happens on human skin. Um, and so that's been really interesting for us. So a lot of the fungi and the bacteria that grow on cheese rinds are very similar to what you have growing between your toes and on your hand and in your armpits. Um, so we were trying to connect the microbes and the work we're doing in our lab to other types of microbial ecosystems like the skin so that what we learn about how microbes are interacting on cheese could be relevant to something like skin. So I like to say that skin is essentially really dilute cheese or cheese is very concentrated skin in terms of the microbial community. Okay. And do you think that any of that, um, I don't know, maybe throughout history has anything to do with since skin has been in contact with cheese or is it just totally separate? In there? Um, I think that it's that they're very similar environments. Okay. Um, so, you know, skin is generally pretty salty, relatively speaking. Um, it's got a lot of protein or some protein and a lot of fats. You know, we sweat and there's, there's a lot of fat sitting around on skin. So that's kind of like uh, cheese. Um, but um, the source of the microbes in some cheeses and a lot of cheeses is actually from the cow udders. So a okay. lot of, you know, the raw milk cheeses, things like the, the good staphylococcus, um, some of the brevibacterium, it's likely that those are probably coming off of the, the udders of the cow. So it's, that's also why there's a lot of parallels. There are some anecdotal thoughts that maybe, you know, human hands touching the cheese could be contributing, but we haven't been able to measure that. And I don't think anyone really has done that very well. Okay. And yeah. I guess then the only difference I kind of, uh, your description of it really does make it sound like, yeah, there's a lot of similarities. Like when I think of the armpits and I was like, oh, that could be kind of like a cheese cave on the body. Exactly. Ex except that it's, it's warm. But right. it, so some of these microbes can, are, are flexible in the kind of environments they can be in both warm or cool. Definitely. So there are some some a lot of microbes that live on cheese actually like it cold and they don't grow very well when it's warm but there are um so crinibacterium is a, a criniform bacterium you sometimes hear them referred to on cheese uh grow on skin and they're also on on cheese um, brevibacterium can do heat okay um and the staphylococcus like staphylococcus xylosis is a, a 
smells amazing. It makes these beautiful, cheesy, buttery sort of flavors. And it's an important starter culture in a, a lot of Australian cheeses and actually in salami as well. Um, and that also likes it warm and, and can grow, uh, relatives can grow on the human skin. So it's not 100% identical. I mean, our skin is probably closest to a wash rind cheese. We're not, obviously we're not moldy um, because we're washing our skin all the time. Um, But there was a recent paper that was just published that looked at the the microbes, both bacteria and fungi living on our feet. And it was amazing. It looked kind of like a natural rind cheese with the mold. There are penicillium species and uh, chrysosporium is another genus of fungi that they found that are normally only in caves and in soil, but they found them on our feet. Um, so, you know, we don't wash our feet as well as we do the rest of our body. So that could be why. That's fascinating. And, yeah. And, and, and so like all of these different, these different aspects, um, uh, how much, when it comes to the cheesemaker, like how much control do they really have on it? Or is it more like following, following historical or, you know, because I know there's some cheesemakers that are making new kinds of cheeses to a right. certain extent, but right. how much, how much control do they really have over it? Or is it just try something and see what happens? Um, I think in part, if you follow a recipe or you sort of follow guidelines, um, you will get generally the right kinds of microbes and there are sort of more subtle things you can do to direct it in different, in different ways. We, I mean, one thing we like to say is if you build it, they will come. Um, for a lot of cheeses. So what we've found in our work is that if you make about the same kind of cheese in California, Vermont, and France, you get about the same kind of microbes giving on your, growing on your rind. And I think part of that is that, you know, the microbes that are in raw milk around the world are about the same. You know, we, cows, and sheep, and goats have about the same kind of microbes living on their udders. Um, people have about the same access to starter cultures and caves around the world have a similar set of microbes. So it's surprising how robust this process is and, and how, you know, despite all the complicated things going on, um, generally cheesemakers have a pretty good handle on it. Uh, and, you know, and playing with things like salt concentrations and moisture and how often you wash it is a pretty good way to manage a microbial community, which they're doing. Um, so yeah, but things can go wrong. Um, and, and they can be difficult to understand why things are going wrong, especially for a cheesemaker that doesn't have a microscope or doesn't know the difference between the different yeasts. Um, and so I think that, you know, troubleshooting a microbial problem on your rind is, is very challenging, but generally when things work, they work really well. So then are you able to or starting to kind of have a uh, troubleshooting, not necessarily written out, but like are, are you finding more and more uh, solutions to things that go wrong based yes. on your studies? Yeah, yeah. Um, so what's great is that we've been able to connect with cheesemakers around the world. So, you know, we're working with folks from Neil's Yard Dairy. We're working from people with people in California and we're sort of this central organization, even though there's just two or three of us, um, that has this interesting perspective on all people's cheese rind problems. So we can have this very synthetic view of, okay, well, when we see this problem, it's because of a change in moisture or this, you know, brown spot problem is because of this microbe. And so we keep seeing things over and over again. So we have developed a, a framework to address these problems. Um, and we've actually surprised ourselves with how um, good we are at, at predicting 
what Orion should be like if you do certain things and also why you have a specific problem. Um, and so that's been really exciting that, you know, what we're doing in the lab and, and also just by talking to so many people and having, we like to say that, you know, cheesemakers are, are natural historians. They're out there working with the, the microbes, the, the organisms that we study that we actually don't get to spend a lot of time with because we're busy in the lab. Um, so by connecting the dots from all these things that the cheesemakers are doing, we're actually you know, putting together an interesting uh, toolkit that's been, been quite useful. And how are the uh, cheesemakers responding to all these kind of things? Obviously, it sounds like the ones you're interacting with are definitely um, for it. I mean, do you find that uh, everyone's really open to knowing more? Like, uh, or or is there? I mean, I guess I don't think of there being microbial resistance, but I mean, do, are there people that just want to keep doing the things the way they're doing them, or is everyone really just kind of for it and wants to know more? Um, most people. Um, especially in the U.S., are super excited because, again, it's, you know, we're turning on a big light for them. They've been working in the dark for a really long time with these things that they don't see, they don't really know, but they make a great product. Um, and so for us to come in and say, this is what you have, and this is sort of why these are important, or, you know, this is the root of this problem, it's amazing for them. It's super helpful. Um, and they're really excited about the science, you know, both the applied stuff that we can tell them how to make cheese better, but also the, the more basic stuff. Um, and then there are, you know, there are some people that have been less interested, but very few people. And I totally respect that. Um, you know, when something works and you've been doing it for a long time, um, why change it or why learn more? Just keep, just keep plugging away. And I totally respect that. You know, in some ways science can take a little bit of the uh, mystique or the, you know, the art away from things. And I totally, like, I get that. And I, I would, I totally respect that opinion. Um, but most people have been super, super, super excited. It's, well, it seems like there's still plenty. I mean, even with as much as you're starting to understand, I mean, it still sounds like there's always going to be plenty more that to, to learn as with most science. I mean, do you yeah. still, are you still able to be, to find any of the amazement in, in cheese or the mystique? Uh... Oh, man. Yeah, all the time. Like, just this this weekend, we saw this crazy new thing that um, Geostricum was doing to a strain of penicillium. It was very simple observation that it was um, changing the color and, and making it produce less spores, which sounds kind of simple. But for us, it was super exciting. And there's, like, a whole project there waiting to happen. So we definitely were, were excited all the time. And I think I'm really excited about the idea of can we make brand new cheese, um, new kinds of cheese or new flavors in cheese by playing with these communities, by, by changing how they interact with each other, by um, uh, one idea I'm really excited about right now is getting microbes that grow in other fermented foods, um, say miso, for example, to grow on something like a camembert, like to have that, the yeast that makes the essential flavors of, of camembert, or sorry, of miso, you know, producing those flavors in a camembert cheese. Wouldn't that be amazing? That'd be so great. Now, is it something that's, uh, in theory, can you kind of put it, piece it together and see how that's possible? Or is it just something that, you know, uh, I mean, can you see a direction to go with that? Yeah. So one thing we can do is, is sort of trick the microbes in the lab. Um, so, you know, one thing, I mean, the sort of easiest way to do it but would not be acceptable to the most of the artisan food producers is some kind of gmo thing where we just sort of stick the gene in for that flavor into a cheese yeast and, and use that but that's not fun um, and that's not a challenge so one thing we can do is essentially 
artificially select, just like we have for dogs and cows and other domesticated things, to do what we want them to do. Um, so we could actually, so right now, if you took a lot of miso yeast, the so things that you know grow in, in miso and produce a lot of the flavors, or miso bacteria, um, if you tried to grow them on cheese curds, they would not grow very well because they've adapted to growing in a high grain, like a high starch um, plant-based environment, not a dairy environment. So they don't like it very much. But in the lab, we can sort of slowly get them to grow um, by selecting, you know, the few individuals that actually can grow a little bit, you know, and over time, just like we have with other, you know, artificial selection experiments in, in domestication, we can actually domesticate the, the microbe to grow on cheese. Now, along the way, it could actually, you know, do other things like we might lose the delicious flavors that we're actually okay. trying to get just like you know a lot of tomatoes don't taste great because we've selected them to look beautiful but they've lost the the flavor profile um so yeah so those are kinds of things that we theoretically can do people have done that um and it's what we call as microbiologists we call that experimental evolution um so it's sort of a, a way to get around the controversial aspects of gmo by naturally you know pushing the the organisms to go in the direction that you want to Sure, which in, in my mind would seem like whether people were purposely trying to do it or not uh, throughout history, you know, the thousands of years that people have been making cheese, that's kind of, isn't that kind of what has happened maybe sometimes too anyway? Exactly. It's exactly what's happened. We've selected uh, a lot of these microbes because of their flavors or because of their aesthetics. And yeah, I mean, by accident often. But um, so if we do it in the lab in a very controlled and, you know, directed way, it's not that different than what history has provided us. Yeah. It just kind of speeds it up, if nothing else. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So we're excited about that. Um, and it, also the idea of finding more strains in different places. So another big effort that we have, and we've actually been doing some pilot work with, is, is finding endemic strains of commercially available microbes, but in the U.S. Um, so most of the starter cultures that you buy in the U.S. are not American microbes. They are usually French microbes. Um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting that when you bite into a, an American, you know, camembert style cheese, there's not a lot that's very American about the things that made that taste delicious. They're very much French microbes, which is fine. It's good. You know, we, we need something to start with, but it'd be great if we could find very similar microbes in the U S to, to make that cheese. And they're out there, they're in our milk supply, um, they're in our environment. And so we've been playing around with uh, this this yeast mold, um, Jatricum, and working with the folks at Jasper Hill to, to make some cheese with an endemic strain of that. And it's been pretty successful. So we're going to try to push forward with that with other with other microbes. And now, are, so are you talking about like it would have kind of different, uh, different flavor or are we talking something very subtle that creates a relatively the same cheese just happens to be a microbe? So it... I mean, ideally, it would be American um, and also taste better. Um, okay. So we can't always guarantee that that would happen. But in our pilot, so um, in our experiments with Jasper Hill, we found uh, a strain of Jatricum that was growing on, on Bailey Hazen Blue, which is a blue cheese, which is weird because you don't really think of that as having a lot of this particular fungus. Um, but it just happened to be in their raw milk, and it happened to grow on this rind. And we made a batch of one of their cheeses that they normally use a, a French Jatricum in, and the cheese tasted so much better. It had more depth. It had more uh, sort of 
it had just deeper flavor notes to it. It didn't have a very shallow taste profile. It was, it was much more enriched with sort of an umami, um, mushroomy undertone. And we are pretty sure, because we did this very controlled experiment, one batch with the, the regular geotricum and the other with the, the native strain. So we're pretty sure that we can attribute that flavor to that, that geotricum. Um, so ideally, yes, they would be American and delicious. <laughs> and, and do you think that that growing has has something to do with say, um, you know, a, a, a French cheese made in France with the geotricum of, of that region, um, and then one made in the U.S. with geotricum of, of this region, is it that it tastes maybe more delicious because of the surrounding environment and the larger uh, scale, or is it just that you found something else that happens to taste better than maybe the, the French one ever would? This was total luck, I think. Okay. Uh, I was really worried when we did this experiment that we would make like a Franken-cheese that would have looked terrible. Um, there's a problem called rind slippage that can happen with a lot of uh, geotricum cheeses where you get too much geotricum growth and the rind actually falls off. Oh. Um, yeah, it's not good. And so I was worried about all those things happening. So this is pure luck, I think. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't really know if we can come up with a good explanation as to why things we could necessarily taste better um we could predict probably if we could you know if we could take all the genes in that organism and understand if it had a gene for a sulfur flavor or uh, a cabbage flavor or a butter flavor we could probably understand at the you know the genetic level why that happens but is yeah. it then hard to transfer that information if you if you do things on the genetic level is it hard to then is it yeah. is it easier to just experiment and see it in the wild kind of yeah, it's hard to translate, as with anything in science, it's often hard to translate what you see in the lab to the real world. But what we're doing in the lab is, and this is why we're using cheese, um, is because it's a very simple system. And um, and one of the biggest problems with people doing microbiology is that they don't know how to grow the microbes. Um, so, you know, if you're working in soil or if you're working in the human gut, it's really hard to create an environment in the lab that is very similar to the natural environment of those microbes. But cheese is a giant petri dish so you know cheese is a you know a very rich medium that cheesemakers make and put out and microbes grow on it so we know exactly what to feed them um so what we do in the lab and the, and the environments we create in the lab are they look fake but they're actually very similar to what you get on a cheese rind so it's what we do in the lab usually works out pretty well on the cheese that's awesome and so do you think that that uh, i mean you hinted at going into miso and going into other things and um you know i know my first uh introduction to any of uh, your work was through uh david chang's talk from like yeah, 2011 yeah, yeah, i yeah, think you yeah. had like a little cameo on that where oh, you talked yeah, about yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah yeah i think yeah are, oh, sorry. Are, are you do you think that like not only cheesemakers but uh other uh chefs and restaurants really kind of getting into the whole uh microbial movement of culinary discovery i mean is is that kind of a direction that you see this all kind of going as well or or uh is cheese rind really uh your part to to add to this uh i think we can definitely go bigger um and again because there are so few people that study the good microbes um there's a lot of work to do out there um so there's there's quite a bit of work in beer and wine so they figured out the yeast thing pretty well. Um, but that's a monoculture generally. Sometimes it's mixed. Um, but things like miso uh, and other fermented, like kimchi, 
kombucha, all these things. Um, there has been some work done, um, but in terms of pushing the boundaries forward and you know making hybrid fermentations or doing the thing like I talked about earlier with evolving the yeasts to do new things and different fermentations, crossing over fermentations, that's totally brand new. Um, so there's a there's a there's a lot to do, and you know cheese is is very different than miso, but in many ways the tools that we use, the questions we ask, and much of what we do it can be applied to any fermented food. Um, it's just, it's a different medium. It's all very exciting though to, to think about all this. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, I, I wake up every day and just like, is this really my job? Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So it's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, well, do you have anything that you would, um, you know, recommend to any listeners either, you know, basic or if someone really wants to geek out like do you have any recommendations books websites or otherwise where people go besides your your stuff um i think you know sandra cast has done a good job with the art of fermentation and wild fermentation unfortunately there is not a very accessible um food microbiology uh book out there for people okay. um there's a lot of really hardcore textbooks and then a lot of uh, very simple explanations, but there's nothing that sort of is in the middle. Um, we're working on that. We're actually trying to put something together that would address that with lots of pretty pictures. Um, so yeah, I, unfortunately there isn't a lot out there. There are a few books. Um, if you just want to get a better understanding of microbiology, the, the book that I use in my summer school class, it's not wonderful, but it does it. It's a very approachable book is called Alchemo's Microbes and Society. So if you just Google Microbes and Society, uh, it should come up. Alchemo's is the, the name of the guy who originally started the series. Um, and there's some used um, second edition uh, versions that you should get. It's a pretty good, if you just want to learn more about how microbes are divided into different groups, and they do talk about food microbiology in there and, and sort of microbes and society in general, as the title suggests. So it's not a bad book. Um, but in terms of like the microbiology of food, there isn't a stellar book out there. Okay. So it sounds like there's a, there's a gap to fill. We're working on it. Yeah. <laughs> and so then more specifically, your, uh, where should people find you and all the work you're, uh, you're doing? Where, what, what different places online? So we're about to, um, publish a paper that's a, our big cheese paper. Um, and it will be an open access journal and we're going to try to write it in a way that, you know, both scientists and cheesemakers and anyone who's excited about it can, can read that. And so that's not out yet, um, but that'll be available. Um, and then I like to tweet a lot of pictures of microbes on Twitter. So at Lupo Labs, at L-U-P-O-L-A-B-S, um, or just look for me as Benjamin Wolf. Um, and then, yeah, stay tuned for more. We have a lot of more stuff planned. We're also working on a project called Microbes for Mongers, where we're going to try to make um, posters up for people to hang up in their cheese shops. So when awesome. people are asking about what is that yellow mold or, you know, why is this orange, there's a, a reference or there's some information that people can refer to. So we're working on a lot right now. So stay tuned for more. And do you know, do you have any upcoming? I know you do some lectures and different things. Are, is there anything coming up anytime soon? Um, I will be in Wisconsin for the uh, Wisconsin Artisan Cheese Guild um, to do a workshop on mold, and that'll be happening in September. Awesome. Um, and then I will be busy in October uh, with a couple events. I'll be talking at the the Cheese Technology Forum, which is a more um, a lot about starter cultures, but I'm going to try to get people excited about 
wild things when I go there. <laughs> awesome. Um, and yeah, and I, we have a bunch of other stuff planned. The summer's a bit busy with teaching at the summer school and a bunch of other stuff, but I think in the fall there'll be some other events popping up. So I, I will post stuff at my website. So if you go, if you just Google Benjamin Wolf Cheese, um, you'll find it. But it's BenjaminEWolf.com. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks for being on today. It's a, Absolutely, it's a, this is fun. Yeah, it's a, it's been great, and you can find uh, anything uh, that Ben is as mentioned today uh, will be uh, links in the show notes, and you can find those at firmup.com slash podcast slash twenty eight, um, and then you can always go to the website or Facebook at firmup or Twitter at firmup. And uh, until next time, firm up. <laughs>